You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. War Games, which came out in 1983 and was directed by John Badham. It stars Matthew Broderick, Dabney Coleman, Ellie Sheedy, Barry Corbin, John Wood, Juanine Clay, Dennis Lipscomb, Irving Metzman, William Bogart, James Tolkien, Susan Davis, Kent Williams, John Spencer, and Michael Madsen. The genre would be espionage techno-thriller. David Lightman was a master at computer games. A fast thinker. Oh, David! Maybe you could tell us who first suggested the idea of reproduction without sex. Your wife? Get out, Lightman. And a promising student. Hi! An old game. Hi! With an electronic twist. Wow. We got something. He found the right code word to play the game. We're in. But it was the wrong computer. Shall we play a game? What in the hell's happening here? Oh my God. Who are you working with? Nobody. I do not believe you. Over day, we have Soviet missile warning. Based on the arrest pending indictment for espionage. Espionage. Confidence is high. I repeat, confidence is high. Over day, is this an exercise? Negative. This is not an exercise. Give me the president on the horn. It's still playing the game. It's gonna start a war. Close up the mouth. Is this a game or is it real? War games playing soon. If it is possible for a film to both be very sobering and deliriously entertaining, then War Games is the prime example. Forty years after its initial release, it still holds up as one of the most important movies of the 1980s for various reasons, including its timely subject matter, quotable dialogue, lasting iconography, its relatable characters, and of course its overall central message, which can be summed up in one simple line of dialogue. Strange game. The only winning move is not to play. That this film is both such a winning time capsule movie and a prescient thriller is a testament to the skills of its very underrated director, John Badham, who six years prior had delivered the arguably even more iconic Saturday Night Fever, previous episode, and one of my favorite movies. Now, very different films, mind you, but similar in that they both transported you to a very distinct time and place while still telling you a very relatable story. In both cases, you could easily vibe with the main character's journey while still reveling in all of the period costumes and lingo and needle drops, all the details. This movie takes us back to a time when home computing was still quite exotic. A youth population was in the early stages of becoming obsessed with gaming, and nobody knew what a hacker was. Are those your grades? Yeah. I don't think that I deserved an F. Do you? do that already done and at the center of its story is david lightman who is a dorky underachieving high school student by day and a daring hacker by night as played winningly by matthew broderick he is likely the first on-screen manifestation of the quote hacker archetype from theo and die hard to mr anderson in the matrix all the way to mr robot it all started with this kid fortunately broderick makes him likable relatable funny and sympathetic 
I mean, David just wants to explore the interwebs, find new games to play, and of course, ensure that all of his grades are passing. He was into games as well as computers. He designed them so that they could play checkers or poker, chess. What's so great about that? Everybody's doing that now. Oh, no, no, no. What he did was great. He, he designed his computer so that it could learn from its own mistakes. So they'd be better the next time they played. The system actually learned how to learn. And it's his efforts to hack into a fake gaming company, which is actually a front for the Pentagon, and how he kickstarts a new round of the global thermonuclear war game, which kicks this story into overdrive. Rewatching the film this latest time, however, what floored me was also remembering that it's not actually Lightman's actions which kick off this story. The inciting incident which starts off this movie actually has nothing to do with him. It's that tense, turn-your-key-sir standoff at the missile silo involving baby-faced young Michael Madsen and the pothead hipster played by John Spencer. Seven. Six. Five. Sir, we have a launch four, order. Three. Put your hand on the key, two, sir. One. Launch. Sir, we are at launch. Turn your key. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Turn your key, sir. It's also the Pentagon slash NORAD's response to said standoff, which sets the plot into motion. Off the bat at NORAD, we get to meet two key main players in the defense of this country. Dabney Coleman's McKittridge, who is very much a technocrat trying to modernize the nation's nuclear defense, and Barry Corbin's General Berenger, who represents the highest of old-school military brass, trying to keep all missile-launching procedures within human hands. Whereas McKittridge is now pushing to centralize the command of such decisions at NORAD to prevent future, quote, human error, which is a real thing established in that first scene. Ways to improve well, but the, the point is that the key decisions of every conceivable option in a nuclear crisis have already been made by the Whopper. So what you're telling me is that all this trillion-dollar hardware is really at the mercy of those men with the little brass keys. That's exactly right. Whose only problem is that they're human beings. But in, what, 30 days, we could replace them with electronic relays. Get the men out of the loop. Gentlemen, I wouldn't trust this overgrown pile of microchips any further than I could throw it. And I don't know if you want to trust the safety of our country to some uh, silicone diode. General, nobody is talking about entrusting the safety of the nation to a machine, for God's sake. We'll keep control, but we'll keep it here at the top where it belongs. And within a few minutes, we understand where both characters are coming from. We can see how they might both be right, and also how they might also both be a bit naive. Not sure why, but I've always just enjoyed watching Dabney Coleman play terse assholes in big comedies like Tootsie and 9 to 5. Now, he dials that down a bit here, but he still provides a nice cerebral contrast to Corbin's good old boy bluster. Bottom line, though, is that it actually helps to have two appealing actors playing likable authority figures on the government's side of this tense brewing conflict. And it does get tense. David, with some help from Jennifer, played charmingly by Ali Sheedy, has inadvertently triggered all-out war with the Russians, leading to his arrest and temporary detention at NORAD, which is where the plot really kicks in around the 40-minute mark and never slows down from there. What follows are tense interrogations, more clever hacks from David. I always love that trick that he pulls with the tape recorder and the key code panel. I think I even know some folks who tried it. Foreboding communications from the Whopper computer, a budding teen romance, several high-level arguments about what the actual stakes are, some brief but effective discussion about the end of the world, and a show-stopping climax, which is both profound and exciting. Oh, it's Joshua! He's still playing the game! 
He's gonna start a war. Hold on, you had it before. We'll be ready to leave in a few minutes. Call Falcon. He'll tell you. Please call him. Please call him. Call him. This brings me to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. The score for this movie was conducted by the late great Arthur B. Rubenstein, who had a strong journeyman's career stretching over 30 years from the early 70s until the early 2000s, doing a lot of television with the occasional movie. In fact, most of the film scores that he did were for John Badham. Some really memorable ones, too, with my personal favorite being for another techno thriller that Badham directed, which, due to studio rights delays, was actually released just a month before this one. That would be the underrated Blue Thunder, starring Roy Scheider, which featured a very cool synth theme. Now, whereas the score for that film was almost entirely synth-based, the music composed for war games was actually quite varied. Sure, as you would expect given the proximity to all these video games, there is some synth score in there, with some bombastic orchestral music sprinkled throughout. But strangely, the main theme of the movie is actually quite low-key, featuring the prominent use of harmonicas, no less. And it's quite lovely. We hear it throughout the movie, but never better than kicking off the end credits of the movie, resulting in one of the better feel-good endings that I can recall seeing. The music starts right after General Berenger makes a key announcement, and then as the camera pulls back, as we watch everyone in that control room just going nuts, papers flying everywhere, people embracing. Colonel Conway, take us to DEFCON 5. get the sense that these folks were going to have one hell of a party that evening. And wouldn't you want to celebrate after coming this close to nuclear annihilation? It's just an ending which never ceases to give me the feels. And this track is fittingly called Edge of the World. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, one performance which I have failed to delve into so far is that of the late, great John Wood, who plays the mysterious Stephen Falcon. John Wood, who did his share of TV and movies, but was mainly known as a true legend of the British stage, he stands out as this mysterious figure who we just hear about in passing up until the third act. And I happen to actually really like his exchanges that he has with Broderick and Sheedy later in the movie. It's an effective portrayal of someone teetering on the edge of nihilism after suffering through personal tragedy. Extinction is part of the natural order. Bullshit! If we're extinguished, there's nothing natural about that. It's just stupid. Oh, it's all right. I've planned ahead. We're just three miles from a primary target. 
A millisecond of brilliant light, and we're vaporized. Much more fortunate than the millions who wander sightless through the smoldering aftermath. We'll be spared the horror of survival. But he isn't quite there yet as he feels the need to defend this perspective from a logical standpoint, along the lines of nature and extinction. I'm only 17 years old. I'm not ready to die yet. You won't make a simple phone call? If the real Joshua was still alive, you're Joshua. You'd do it, wouldn't you? Look, we might gain a few years, perhaps time enough for you to have a son and watch him die. But humanity, planning its own destruction, that a phone call won't stop. That said, I think I might have liked a bit more. For him to maybe join the story just a bit earlier? I don't know. I'm torn about it because I find this to be a near-perfect movie and a relatively lean 110 minutes at that. It's just that would leave such a lasting impression here of someone who I wanted to get to know more about. Still, he does a great job with what he's given. So this is a minor criticism. General, are you prepared to destroy the enemy? You betcha. Do you think they know that? I believe we've made that clear enough. Then don't. Tell the president to write out the attack. Sir, they need a decision. General, do you really believe that the enemy would attack without provocation, using so many missiles, bombers, and subs, so that we would have no choice but to totally annihilate them? One minute and 30 seconds to impact. General, you are listening to a machine. Do the world a favor and don't act like one. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Now, there are several tense sequences throughout this movie, but none more so than the last 20 or so minutes where everything just culminates, as David, Jennifer, and Stephen Falcon all find themselves right in the thick of it, at that main control room at NORAD. All of our major characters converge together as the story climaxes into not only a battle between different philosophies, but an inadvertent one between man and machine. Just so many highlights of this sequence, so I'll rattle off a few. That giant blast door closing slowly. The redundant tic-tac-toe suggestion from some random guy amidst the crowd gathered at that keyboard behind David. Put X in the center square. No. That holding back tears expression on Falcon's face as he realizes what Joshua is about to say. Greetings, Professor Falcon. Hello, Joshua. General Berenger's comment about pissing on a spark plug. Private list game. Stephen, for Christ's sake. No letter. He's played it before. He can hardly do worse than you have, John. Two numbers. God damn it, I'd piss on a spark plug if I thought it'd do any good. Let the boy in there, Major. The affectionate way that David and McKittrick ruffle each other's hair at the very end. The completely freaked tone of voice from Airman Doherty at Loring Air Force Base when Berenger is doing a roll call of the first bases to get hit with these supposed nuclear warheads on the way. Uh, this is uh, Loring Air Force Base. Uh, the uh, senior controller isn't here right now. That's all right. Who are you? Uh, sir, uh, sir, this is Airman Doherty, sir. And some of the more interesting-sounding nuclear war scenarios listed on screen from Whopper in that control room as Joshua lists every one of them. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple which sound kind of bizarre, like the Canadian Thrust or Bavarian Diversity or the Sudan Surprise. And speaking of all those screens that we're watching light up during that climax, I cannot not mention the chillingly rendered visualization of global nuclear war courtesy of Joshua slash Whopper, which still really holds up. 
Now, of course, what we're watching isn't actually playing on those screens broadcast from a computer. All that bright imagery was actually pulled off with state-of-the-art vector graphics thanks to visual effects supervisor Michael Fink, who had been working his magic for the movie Blade Runner just the year before. Yeah, he was one of the best at that time. All of those on-screen images that we see is actually done through the older technique of rear projection, but it's still quite impressive to watch, even in 2023. Which brings me to the final category, the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. What really sets this apart from so many other Cold War thrillers and helps keep it special all these decades later is actually a double-edged conceit from co-writers Lawrence Lasker and Walter F. Parks, who were justifiably nominated for an Oscar for their brilliant screenplay. Here's the thing. There are no real bad guys here. There's not any kind of Russian military insurgent like Redchenko from Crimson Tide, nor a wackadoo American nuclear cowboy like General Jack D. Ripper from Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, that Kubrick, he was pretty clever with those names, wasn't he? There are no sinister forces at work here in this story, pulling the strings to bring about Armageddon. That just about every character is written as somewhat relatable helps maintain a briskly entertaining vibe for the movie. And yet that same trait is also what makes the themes of this movie so chilling as well. The fact that we could come so agonizingly close to nuclear annihilation despite everyone involved having the best intentions and only eking our way out of it by sheer tic-tac-toe-fueled luck channeled by the one teenage hacker who was not a sociopath or nihilist. Think about that. I mean, imagine if Broderick's protagonist was actually Ferris Bueller as opposed to the sweet-natured David. Bueller? Bueller? Well, that's a thought which could keep anyone up at night. As well-directed and as well-acted as this film is, it's the overall structure, ideas, and dialogue which helps mark it as a classic 40 years after it first hit theaters. And for that reason, Walter F. Parks and Lawrence Lasker are your co-MVPs. My rating for War Games would be 5 stars out of 5. Wow, Batam and crew just knew what they were doing here. Crafting a techno-thriller which adeptly entertains its audience while never shying away from some big questions. It not only remains an enjoyable nostalgia piece from the Cold War 80s, but one of the best films from that era as well. Happy 40th to one of my personal favorites. And if you're looking to watch War Games, it's currently streaming on Showtime. And that ends another DEFCON 1 review. Special shout out to my lovely wife Marlene Gershon for producing this podcast, and to my lovely daughter Ella Gershon for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.